0: God raised Jesus from the dead. But what possible difference does such an incredible event make in our lives today? Discover why it matters today on the Central Baptist Podcast. It's obviously a wonderful time celebrating uh, Easter Sunday, always the big highlight of the year. And it's because the resurrection of Jesus really is at the core of the Christian message. In fact, I think you could say it's the core of the core. Apostle Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So, it's the core of the core. In other words, one way that we could approach Easter Sunday uh, is that we could just talk about the evidence that Jesus has been raised. It's very important, of course, to establish that Jesus actually has been raised from the dead. So. That's kind of what we did last year. One way that we can approach Easter and we have approached Easter is to talk about the evidence for Jesus' resurrection because, as I've said, it is the core of the core. As Paul said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. All of Christianity actually is a lie if Jesus was not raised from the dead. That's what the Apostle Paul says. So one way to approach Easter is to just talk about the evidence. Was Jesus actually raised from the dead? And that's kind of what we Well, we did do that last Easter in part. But this year, I want to do something different. This year, I want to ask the question, so what? I mean, even if this incredible event happened and God actually raised Jesus from the dead, okay, that's really incredible, really incredible. But what possible difference does that make to our lives 2,000 years later living halfway across the world? So what? And that's a good question to ask because it's important if you're just looking into Christianity, maybe you're here today, it's Easter Sunday, you thought you'd come to church, what's the big deal about this whole idea of Jesus being raised from the dead? It's important for that. But I think it's also important if you are even a long-time Christian because I think every Christian would say, of course the resurrection of Jesus matters. None of this is controversial so far at all. But if you actually ask, why does it matter? No, like really, what does it precisely mean for your life? I find that a lot of Christians aren't quite sure what to say at that point. I think you can see this in the fact that as Christians, uh, we're, we can pretty easily talk about the cross and what the cross means. Uh, we have many sermons, we have many books, we have many songs, all about the cross of Jesus Christ. But when it comes to the resurrection, there aren't near as many sermons, books, or songs, not even close to the same amount. And yet, if you are a Christian and you've read the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, look for how much the resurrection comes up in the sermons, in the speeches, and in the prayers in the book of Acts. And what you will discover if you go through the book of Acts looking for this is that the New Testament church, the early church, actually emphasized the resurrection, I might even say, more than the cross. Not that they didn't talk about the cross, But the dominant note of the sermons, the speeches, and the prayers in the book of Acts is the resurrection. Let me give you a quick sampling. For instance, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon. He said God raised him up, loosing uh, the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up twice. He actually does three times in this sermon. He talks about this. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is speaking in another town. And here's what we read. In a speech he gave, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day. Or when you get to Acts chapter 17, Paul is in the city of Athens. And he's giving this great speech. And he said, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all. By raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus is the core of the core of the Christian message. The early Christians not only believed that it happened, but that it was just as important as the cross. And it should be emphasized just as much as the cross. And so we've got to ask ourselves then, what does it all mean? Why does it matter? And so the question I want us to ponder more precisely this morning is simply this. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? And to do this, I actually want to look at four passages of Scripture. It could be a four-part series, one sermon on each of these, but sometimes I think it's great to just get a bit of an overview. And so we'll look at these four passages of Scripture this morning to answer that question. And what I hope to show you is that there is nothing more practical in the entire universe for your life, living in Victoria 2,000 years after the event, than the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. So what does the resurrection of Jesus mean? Here's the first thing we discover. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead means that we can be made right with God. We can be made right with God. In Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, the apostle Paul says these words. He refers to Jesus our Lord, and then he says of him who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That word justification comes from the courtroom. It pictures God as the judge. We are the guilty criminals who've broken God's law. We've been charged with a long list of sins. We've not loved our creator as we ought to. We've not loved other people as we ought to. And so the verdict has been read. Guilty as charged. The sentence hangs over our heads. Judgment, this is what we receive for our sins, for our trespasses. But the story of the Bible is how God the judge has made a way for guilty criminals like you and I to be set free and not have to face the sentence that is looming over our heads. But if you think about that for a moment, you've got to ask yourself, how can that be? Imagine a judge here in the city of Victoria. Somehow, you know, someone comes, a criminal comes before the judge, and the judge says, well, I'm a, I'm a loving person, and so I'm just going to let you go free. I think we would all gather on the legislative lawn and have a giant protest, and we say, well, this judge needs to be impeached. That's not justice. You can't do that. So how then would God allow criminals, guilty ones like you and I, to go free? Well, the Apostle Paul says it's through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, his death. As Paul writes, Jesus, our Lord, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Delivered up for our trespasses. Notice, camp out on this little word here, our. He was not crucified for his own trespasses, for he had none. He did not sin. He was crucified for our trespasses. What we just heard sung for us. He died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we don't have to face it and God can be just and allow us to go free because the punishment has been served. But what I want you to notice carefully, I think everyone's like, okay, yeah, we got this. That's up to Good Friday. But I want you to see how the resurrection also comes into this because notice also he talks about Jesus our Lord who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. To be justified means you are right with God the judge. There is no list of more of crimes for you to pay. When the judge looks down at his papers, there are no charges against you. You are not condemned. You are free. So how can you know for sure that God the judge will forgive your sins and you will not have to face the punishment that is deserving of them on judgment day? How can you know that for sure? Well... The Apostle Paul is saying he's been raised from the dead for our justification. So put it this way. In raising him, God was saying, this is my proof to you that Jesus' death has paid the price for all your sins. In raising his son from the dead, God is saying, the crimes have been punished. There's no more punishment to be given. The debt has been paid. Justice has been served, and anyone who comes to Jesus the Son can be justified before God the Judge. So here's a way that you can think of it. I gave this illustration some years ago, but I think it bears repeating because it I think it just connects well. The resurrection of Jesus is like God's receipt that Jesus' death has paid our sins in full. What's a receipt? A receipt is its hard proof. It's hard evidence, right? That, that, that uh, something has been paid for. It's the proof of purchase. The proof that a payment has been made. A few years ago, I got a, uh, a reassessment letter from Revenue Canada. Now, they accused me, and they said in this letter that, uh, well, it was one of those letters that didn't accuse me of doing anything wrong, but it was meant to strike fear into my heart. They said that I owed them a few thousand dollars because what I wrote on my taxes for how much I gave to charitable donations, in charitable donations, did not match the receipts. Oh, what kind of pastor is this? Not only that this letter went on to threaten very bad things to threaten that if I did not produce these receipts then my wife and my kids and me would have be exiled to live in Manitoba for 20 years <laughs> I mean that's nothing worse than that so Okay, didn't say that, but they did threaten very bad things, you know, and it wasn't one of these scam phone calls, you know, those terrible ones where they threaten you all the time, but it was a Revenue Canada official piece of paper saying, if you don't produce the proper proofs of your receipts, you are in really big trouble, and uh, you're going to get charged and all these types of things, right? So, here's the question. Did I fall into great fear about all of this? Did I lose sleep over all of this? Well, that all depends on one thing, doesn't it? Do I have receipts that proved that I gave such and such amount of dollars to the charitable organizations that I claimed? Are there receipts to prove that these payments were made in full? Well, I knew that I'm honest on my taxes, and so I called up my financial advisor. He's the one who has my papers, and I said, Hey, I need the the receipts for this. He went and looked for them. He said... He didn't have them. He said I should look in my house. I looked all around my house. I tore my house apart everywhere trying to find these receipts and I could not find them anywhere. I foolishly had not made copies of them that I could quickly pull out, and I did start losing sleep, lying in bed. Where are these receipts? And so after a few weeks of anxiety, thankfully, my financial advisor called me. He said, I really apologize. They were just filed wrongly at the office. I have the receipts, and I will send them over to you. What a relief. I was so happy, and so with my receipts in hand... I now had no fear whatsoever, I was bold, I was filled with confidence, I was free, and I could look Revenue Canada in the eye and say, here's the receipts, be gone Revenue Canada, I don't owe you anything, threaten me all you want, here is the hard proof that a whole payment was made and it was made in full down to the last penny, a receipt is hard proof that everything has been paid, and this is how Jesus' resurrection relates to his death. His death is the payment for our sin and his re- and the resurrection when God raised him from the dead is in a sense god's receipt to say, I receive the death of my son. it has fully paid, and because he has done this, I am raising him from the dead he was crucified for our trespasses he was raised for our justification now this is so practical again for how it relates to you living right here today what do you do when the Holy Spirit works in your life and your your conscience is working in your life or both and you realize you have sinned against God and in that moment you can sense I cannot draw near to this holy God that we sung of earlier you know your sin, and maybe it's the very first time, maybe even today you're coming before God, and you're saying, I recognize that I sin. I know I can't draw near. I know that I'm guilty. Or maybe it's for the thousandth time, and you've done something, and you realize in your mind, I've done something wrong here, and there's accusing voices coming in, and those voices are saying you can't draw near to God. What do you do in that moment? The first thing you do is you agree with the accusing voices. You say, you're right, I don't deserve God's love and favor. I have sinned against God, but Jesus died for my sins. He was delivered up for my trespasses. And then you confess your sins before God. But even then, you've confessed your sins, but it's still on your mind. And in that moment, those accusing voices can still say to you, okay, you've confessed, and that's great and all, but can't you feel how wrong you are? Can't you feel that you don't deserve to draw near to God? And that feeling in that moment feels like reality to you. And maybe you just think, I, I don't know. I've confessed him, but I don't feel any better about this. How do I know that God has forgiven my sins? How do I know that I can draw near to him? In that moment, what you need is for the receipt not to be stored away somewhere. You need it in your back pocket. You need to be able to pull out your receipt in that moment. And you need to be able to say to the accusing voices, here's the receipt. God raised his son from the dead. My sins not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Jesus paid it all. Be gone, accusing thoughts. I don't owe you anything. Jesus paid it all. And what's the proof? That God raised him from the dead. We should trust that if God says something, it's true. But God did much more than just say it. He proved it in raising his son from the dead. So that's the first thing that Jesus' resurrection means. It means we can be made right with God. And so the obvious application here is, have you come before God asking him to forgive you of your trespasses, asking him to make you right with him? Have you done that today? When you do that, hear the message of Easter. That God raised his son from the dead for your justification. You are right before God the judge. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been made right through his death and through his resurrection. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing about what Jesus' resurrection means. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead means that he has unrivaled supremacy. That Jesus has unrivaled unrivaled supremacy and here I want to go to maybe one of the most famous passages in all the Bible in Philippians chapter 2 to once again show the connection between Jesus' death and his resurrection helping you to see how these things always go together This passage begins by describing the high position that Jesus has as the eternal Son of God, and it moves from a high to a low. So Jesus is the Son of God. He humbles himself to become a man. He goes even lower when he dies, even lower than that. The type of death that he dies, he dies a horrible death upon a cross. So watch this high-low movement, okay? Here's what we read. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's gone down. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He's gone down even further. Even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Because Jesus moved from this high position and humbled himself, To this low position, we once again discover that God does something for his son. Because Jesus did all of this, the father does something for the son. And what does he do? He raises him to the highest place. So you have a high, low, high movement in Philippians chapter 2. God raises him from the lowest place to the highest place to the place of unrivaled supremacy. Here's how Paul continues. Therefore... In light of everything that Jesus just did, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So because of his tremendous humility, because of his obedience, because of his self-sacrifice, God has exalted his son to the highest place. There is no higher position than this. There is no more place to go. He has been given the highest position of authority so that the Bible would say, he's king over all the kings. He is Lord above all the lords. And at his name, every single knee in all the universe should bow because Jesus has been given the unrivaled supremacy of the position in which he now holds. He is the Lord. So all of creation then, you and I included, are called to bow the knee to the king over all the kings and the Lord over all the lords. The early Christians wanted to communicate this all the time. And they would communicate it, for instance, in many ways, but also in art would be one of the main ways they wanted to communicate Jesus' unrivaled supremacy. And so, for instance, wealthy Christians would pay an artist, a carver in particular, to take a stone and to form a coffin, a sarcophagus, so that when they died, they would be buried in this. And the carver would then create art around the whole outside of the sarcophagus, carving into the marble, carving into the stone. And this art, as art always does, communicates something. And so they would use this form of art in carving these marble sarcophagi, uh, to communicate the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus. If you've been to the city of Rome, you'd also know that under Rome, there are 17 kilometers of underground caverns and caves where many of these Christians, early Christians, are buried. So let me show you one sarcophagus. This is from the year 350 A.D., if you 're listening to the podcast or if you want to just check this out later, you can look it up, Google "Sarcophagus of Domatilla DOM Domatilla. and let me explain these carvings to you because I want you to see how this communicates the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus Christ. Notice. There are five panels in the side of the sarcophagus. Kind of like a comic strip has five uh, particular spots. There are five panels. And so on the far right panels, the two on the right describe, uh, show Jesus before Pilate. The two on the left show Jesus carrying his cross, being tortured. And this one in particular, he's getting the uh, crown of thorns uh, pressed into his skull. It's the center panel, though, that's the main point. Everything points to the center. And this panel combines the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So let's zoom in on it. And let me show you and let me explain to you some things by working from the bottom all the way up to the top. And when we put it all together. Wow, is this a powerful message. Notice, first of all, there's a cross. Behind the cross is a stone stone tomb. That's the first thing we see. Secondly, notice the cross is empty. There's nobody hanging on this cross. It's an empty cross. Third, notice there's two Roman soldiers down underneath the cross. One of them is sleeping, pointing to the story of Jesus at the tomb. And the second Roman soldier is looking up, kind of pondering all the things that are above him that we're about to look at. Fourth, notice that there are two doves sitting on the two, both sides of the crossbeam. Doves in Jesus' time symbolized resurrection. So now what's being symbolized is there's a cross, it's empty, no one hangs on it. Whoever hung upon this cross has been raised from the dead and the doves are meant to symbolize this for us. Notice also, the doves are looking up, aren't they? They're looking up towards a symbol, And it's the symbol that dominates the entire panel. This entire symbol in here dominates the panel and is at the very center of the entire sarcophagus. So we're meant to ask, okay, what is going on? When you look at this symbol, do you know what this is? Maybe a couple of you, if you have done a bit of history, any ancient Christian would have known what this meant. Most common thing in the world. But since you don't speak Greek, most of you, we have to do a little bit of background what is the symbol? It's called a Cairo. Chi is a Greek letter. It looks like our X. You see it there? Looks like an X, but it's a Greek letter. And when you, uh, yeah, when you bring it to English, it is the letters C H. Translated to English, it's C H. Then rho. Rho is also a Greek letter. It looks like our English letter P, but when you translate it into English, it's actually our letter R. Okay, so you have a chi and you have a row. So what you have here is the chi, the x, and then you have the row on top of it, all making one little symbol. If you translate it those two letters into English, you get C H R. Take a wild guess what that symbolizes. This is wheel no, not Wheel of Fortune. What game do we play? Bible Jeopardy for ten cents. That's all you get. It's shorthand, of course, for Christ. So it's a symbol, and any early Christian, when you put an X with a P in English, anyways, Cairo, if you put them on top of each other, it's a symbol for Christ, God's Messiah, the one who would come to bring us salvation. Now it gets really fun as well. Notice that around the Cairo is a wreath. What does a wreath symbolize? I'm sure this one you know. Uh, You've watched the Olympics before. You know how the old Olympic Games work. In the ancient Olympic Games, if you won the race, you would get a wreath, right? You put a wreath on your head of the victor. It was a symbol of victory. Uh, You've probably seen pictures of Caesar, the old emperors, and things like this. They would always have a wreath on their head. It's a symbol of unrivaled supremacy, a symbol of victory. There is no one greater than the one who is wearing the wreath. So here now we're learning that the Christ who was on the cross, who has been resurrected, has been given the wreath of victory for he is victorious over death. Then notice on the very top of the panel, there's an eagle flying towards you. This is the eagle's head, and his wings outstretch over the entire panel. In Roman times, the eagle represented the god Jupiter who gave victory. Now, this has been taken into Christian art to say that Jesus, the Christ, he is the one who is victorious. All this is attributed to Jesus. And then finally, notice, that the tips of both the eagle's wings are these two little faces. You see these little faces over here? Very A little bit hard to see. Again, very common Roman art. These are supposed to be the faces of Sol and Luna, the sun and the moon. And in Roman art, whenever you saw this, it was meant to emphasize that Rome, with its great empire, extends its authority and its kingdom and its empire wherever the sun rises and wherever the moon shines. All power, all authority. Now put it all together. The maker of this sarcophagus is making a powerful statement using the artistic symbols of his or her day. The carver is saying, Jesus, this man Jesus, is God's promised Christ, the Cairo. God's promised Messiah, the one whom God promised would come to bring salvation, to rid this world of evil, to bring us into a new world where there is no tears, where there is no death. Jesus is this promised Messiah. A crown of thorns was mockingly placed onto his head as in that other panel, but now Jesus wears the wreath of victory, the crown of victory. Jesus was abused. He was killed by the authorities of his day, but God has raised him from the dead and has made him the king above all kings, that his kingdom reigns wherever the sun rises and wherever the moon shines. This Jesus was crucified, but God raised him from the dead, and this panel is meant to communicate to anyone who came to see it the absolute, unrivaled supremacy of Jesus, God's Son, the Messiah. All people, including you and I then, are meant to hear this and to bow the knee to the only King who has authority over all things. Each of us are meant to encounter Jesus, the risen Son of God. To bow the knee and say, Jesus, forgive me for the way I've not lived for you. And now I pledge to you my allegiance. I give you my life. I give you everything. For you are worthy above all to receive it. You're the king of all kings. You're the Lord of all lords. And I give you my life. And so then again, the question is, have you done this? And are you living under the supremacy of, Of this great king. That's the first two things we learn then about the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. Here's something totally different now in the third place. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead means our daily work has new meaning. Our daily work has new meaning. You know, on Good Friday, we often uh, use that phrase it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. That's true. That's what we say on Friday. It's Friday, but Sunday's a coming, anticipating the resurrection of Jesus. Well, we could also say it's Sunday, but Monday's a coming. We sing on Sunday, we got to go back to work on Monday, except for this week. We pray on Sundays, we gather for worship on Sundays, but there's a lot of work to be done the rest of the week. The resurrection of Jesus is meant not just to be a Sunday only thing, it is meant to connect to you everything else that happens from Monday to Saturday. The smallest details of your life, the tiniest things that you do, the resurrection of Jesus is meant to speak into the very nitty gritty of life that we do all week long. How does it do that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks for an entire chapter about Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection. And then after 57 verses of this, he concludes with these words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Work. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The work of the Lord is anything that you do, no matter how tiny. The smallest word of encouragement. The smallest thing that you do to bring good into this world. The smallest thing, it fulfills the work of the Lord. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, it doesn't matter how small it is. Nothing that you do is in vain. And within the context of the entire chapter... It's because one day we will be raised from the dead and somehow, in some mysterious way, we're not sure entirely how, what we do in this life echoes into eternity. Somehow carries over. Not sure all what that means, but it's not in vain when you do it for the Lord. Somehow it makes an eternal impact. Here's what one author named N.T. Wright says. You are, strange though it may seem, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings or, for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. Oh, that gives meaning to our lives. Your life matters What you do matters. It's all part of this new life that the risen Jesus gives us, a life that lasts into eternity. So what is this meaning? How practical is this? The smallest little details of how you live your life for Christ this week are not in vain. That's practical. There's one last thing that the resurrection means that I want to bring to your attention this morning, and it's this. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead means we have hope in the face of death. Hope in the face of death. Near the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul does something incredible. We looked at this last week. I'm going to develop it just a little bit further with a little recap. At the end of this chapter, Paul taunts death. He mocks death. He looks death in the eye and he ridicules it. He says, he calls to death, he speaks to death, and he says, "'Hey, death, oh, death!' Where's your victory? That's sarcasm. That should be dripping with sarcasm. Where's your victory, death? Rhetorical answer. It's a rhetorical question. You got no victory. That's what it's saying. Hey, death, where's your sting? You're like a rattlesnake. You have no poison in you, so you can bite, but it really makes no big deal. Your poison's been drawn from you. He's heckling death. He's ridiculing it. And what we asked about last week, and we'll just develop a little further now, is where does Paul get this supreme confidence in the face of our greatest enemy? I mean, how do you do this? Is he just, we asked, is he just talking big? People, people can talk big all the time. But can you back it up? Uh, we said, no, he's not naive. He's not talking big. He has a hope which every single Christian can have. Anyone who belongs to Christ can have that is not just based on philosophy. It's not even based on a promise of God, though that would be enough. It is based upon rock-solid logic and rock-solid facts that have already taken place in history. Let me give you a sentence that can give you hope, and I pray you'll cling to the rest of your life. You can even try to memorize it right now. If you don't memorize it word for word, get the truth of it. Here is the hope in the face of death. That since God raised Jesus from the dead, since God's already done that, he can, oh and he will, that's the promise of First Corinthians 15, raise all those who belong to Jesus from the dead. This is 1 Corinthians 15 in a nutshell, the best I can say it. Since God raised Jesus from the dead, he can and he will raise all those who belong to Jesus from the dead. Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of a future resurrection. You know, harvest time, the very first peach that comes off a tree, it is is indicative, it is the forerunner, the appetizer of a giant harvest that is to come. What Paul is saying is, in raising Jesus from the dead, God was showing us as a first fruit. Here's the first peach and i'm going to do something on a massive scale in the future. And the great hope of first corinthians 15 and many other parts of the bible is that one day jesus will return. He will raise us from the dead. He will give us immortal bodies like his own. We follow in the footsteps of our Savior. We get resurrection bodies that are immortal, that death can no longer touch. Just as death killed Jesus, it will kill us. But Jesus will raise us from the dead, giving us this body. And once he gives us these immortal bodies, death can't touch us anymore. So that's why the Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who, Who have fallen asleep, who have died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so, all who belong to Christ can have hope in the face of our greatest enemy. O death, you may kill us. You may bite like the rattlesnake bites us, and death, you have done that. You've taken many of our loved ones, our brothers and sisters in Christ, away from us. And As we've been talking about here at Central, there have been many in this last year specifically. I mean, since last Easter, we have lost Darlene Bagshaw, <clears throat> Norma Webster, May Miller, Joyce Danielson, Liz Morgan... Betty Miller, Werner Koch, Eileen Richards, Gordon Duke, Doris Morehouse, Frida Semrau, Bruce Rumer, Paul Banaconin, <clears throat> Gordon Belbin, Bob McKay, Anson Patterson, and Giles Addy. Death, you've made us grieve. Death, you put tears in our eyes. And none of us can stand against you. Death, we saw you. We saw you last week. Stood before. A giant open hole in the ground watching our brother Giles' body within his coffin lowered. Death, you swallowed him up. Death swallowed him up in victory. It felt so final. The bodies in the grave swallowed up in victory. But a day is coming when the risen Christ will return. This is what I was thinking as I was standing there. And God will raise All who belong to Christ, like he's already done in history. It's not a philosophy. It's not even a promise. It's more than that. He's already done it, and he promises that as he did it once in the Savior, Jesus Christ, he will do again on a massive scale, raising all who belong to Christ from the grave. So death... You've done your worst, and you did. You took everyone. No one stands before you. But a day is coming, O death, when we, Christ's people, will be given resurrection bodies like God gave to his Son, bodies that are immortal, bodies that are imperishable. That is, bodies that death cannot touch. So, in light of that death, you don't have the last word. A day is coming when we all stand in those bodies, and Paul says on that day a saying will come true, death, you who swallowed us all up in the grave, death, you will be swallowed up in victory, and death will be no more. And so that is why anyone who belongs to Christ can stand before a grave, the finality of death before us, the total reality, not trying to gloss it over or candy coat it, and we can look death in the eye and ridicule it and mock it. We can kick dust in the face of death, saying, Oh, death, where's your victory, death? Death, where's your sting? Dr. W.A. Criswell was the uh, late pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. He tells a story about how he one day was on an airplane and he found himself sitting next to a well-known professor of theology. And the man had told Dr. Criswell how he had recently lost his young son. And the theologian had come home one day from uh, work, and the, the boy had come home from school with a fever. And they thought it was just kind of one of those childhood things, but it wasn't. It turned out to be a very powerful form of meningitis. And the doctor said they could do nothing for the boy and that he would soon pass away. And so this professor, loving his son, of course, as he did, sat by his bedside. It was the middle of the day. The sun was shining very brightly, but clearly the boy was beginning to pass away and he felt like everything was getting dark and cloudy and he said dad it's getting dark isn't it and his dad said yeah son it's getting dark really really dark the professor said to his son or the boy said to his dad dad I guess it's time for me to go to sleep isn't it his dad said to him yes son it's time for you to go to sleep and he said he had a way of kind of fixing his pillow just so, and he liked to sleep with his head on his hand. And the boy fixed his pillow, laid his head on his hands, and he said, good night, Dad. I'll see you in the morning. And with that, he died. And Dr. Criswell said the professor didn't say anything after that. He just looked out the window of the airplane for really, Long time. And then, after a really long time, he turned back, looked at Dr. Criswell, and he said to him, Dr. Criswell, I can hardly wait for morning. Since Jesus rose from the dead, the long, dark night of grief. Will come to an end. Since Jesus rose from the dead, dawn is coming. The great hope of the resurrection, then, is that we can look death square in the eye, never candy coating it, never throwing around silly cliches. We can face the utter, total defeat of death, seeming defeat. And yet we can have a great hope amidst our grief, recalling that when Christ returns, he will resurrect all his people. We will be united with those whom we've lost. We will see them again. We will know them as Christ was known. He was still Christ. He was not some sort of ghost or didn't become one with the universe. He was still Christ. We will know those who have gone before us. We will be reunited with them and we will be with the Lord forever. So, in light of that, even though we grieve, we can mock death and we can ridicule death because we have this great hope. So, what does it mean that Jesus was raised? I mean, so what that some guy, maybe, even if it happened, if some guy 2,000 years ago raised, what difference does it make to us? It's all the difference in the world. Since God raised Jesus from the dead, we can be forgiven our trespasses and be made right with our Creator, have our conscience clean and a new life. Since God raised Jesus from the dead... He, Jesus has been given the place of unrivaled supremacy. There is an authority in this universe that is good and will make all things right again one day. Since Jesus was raised from the dead, even now, our daily work has new meaning. What you do matters. Your life matters down to the smallest act. And since God raised Jesus from the dead, we can have hope in the face of death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death. death. Where is your sting? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you had mercy upon us. You did not leave us in our sins, but that you sent your son into this world in order to save us. Jesus, we praise you that you went from the highest position to the lowest position on our behalf that you were delivered up for our trespasses and we give you praise as the one now has been raised to the highest place. We confess and we gladly say now, even in advance of that final day, we confess that you are the Lord and we gladly and we joyfully bow our knee to you, saying you have the position of unrivaled supremacy. Take our lives, use them however you want. We pray this all in your name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.